pleased to be here. Uh, it's, it's more of a seminar. Uh, it's not a big group here. So I hope we can turn this into a, a kind of a, a dialogue rather than a lecture. But I will start off and make a few points. Uh, first of all, what, what's not in that bio is the fact that a lot of my research writing on the Middle East is not public. It's not published. Uh, it's for commissioned papers. Uh, mainly for the U.S. government. That sounds like my phone. Let me turn my phone off. Uh, and therefore, uh, a lot of you don't know uh, what my expertise is. But my interest has always been in the Middle East. I first went to the Middle East in 1966 and became very much fascinated with, with Egypt and Nasser. And so that, as a starting point, gives you some idea of where my expertise is. Um, what I'm going to do in this little talk is talk about the Middle East and the, the four camps, which I call them, whether the, these four camps are meaningful anymore, and then I'm going to kind of lead land, gently I hope, in, in the area that I'm very focused on right now, which is the future of Syria. Syria, as all of you know, is very much in the news. And um, we're at a bit of a, of a, of a uncertainty. And since uncertainty is, is something that attracts me, uh, I don't like to deal with certitudes and uh, boring stuff, um, I, I'm going to probably dwell at length on this. The other thing you should know, uh, just for background, you know, you know, where is this guy coming from? Well, I'm an American, but I'm also... Uh, a, I've become an expert, shall we say, on how uh, Israel views its regional challenges because that was the paper that I just finished that I was commissioned on. That. The commissioner was not uh, in the Middle East, it was in Washington. So, so you, you'll probably get some uh, thoughts on that perspective that you won't get in uh, ordinary newspapers because I kind of dug in deep talk to a lot of people, talk to a lot of senior people, and I think I get it. I've been doing this for several years, so I have kind of built up uh, a kind of a cadre of people that I can talk to. And it is something that I follow every morning. Every morning I read, say, what is happening? So what's, what's happening? What's the latest uh, this morning? Um, I don't know. The latest is that... Uh, Israel now has an iron dome mechanism that can be fired off of ships in order to protect its oil rigs from Hezbollah or, or this future Iranian sea base that they're worried about. But anyway, that's a little taste of what you're going to get. I'm probably going to go for 35 minutes, Andrew. I have a feeling the way I'm, I've launched this introduction, it's not going to be as tight as it should be. We have time, John. This is the big term, and it's also the, uh, this is the most difficult period for any American, the first 48 hours after Thanksgiving weekend. Because Thanksgiving weekend, you just shut it down, and it takes you so long to get to where you have to get to on Monday that you're really completely wasted. I don't have that excuse, but I am an American, and I did celebrate Thanksgiving on Sunday night. Anyway, what I would like to pose is the following question. We've divided the Middle East into four camps in recent years. You've probably heard this before. There's the Saudi-led camp, which are 
what we call the moderates, the moderate Sunnis, uh, the monarchies, Egypt, Tunisia, what, what we consider most of the members of the Arab League. Then you have the Turkey-led kind of political Islam Muslim Brotherhood camp, which is really Turkey, Qatar maybe, Hamas maybe. It's really a small camp. Uh, you could call it a fringe group within the Sunni world or a separate camp. Then, of course, you have the Iran-led Shia camp. And finally, you have this, um, I don't know how to be politically correct, but Takfiri Salafist Jihadi camp, uh, AQ, um, Daesh, or ISIS. So those are the four camps that we've been thinking about. And the question is, clearly there have been, if you had to use a political science terminology, uh, the Middle East, you would say, is now characterized by shifting alliances and volatility of power constructions. Shifting alliances. Alliances constantly shifting. Look at Turkey with Putin now. I mean, just a year and a half ago, Turkey shot down a, a, a Russian fighter. Um, look, at, look at Qatar and, and, and the uh, GCC. Um, look at Israel and Saudi. So you have these shifting alliances. So does, do these four camps make sense anymore? And what I've decided on the train ride here is that no, the, the camps still work. What, what is happening is a logical conclusion of the camps. It's one thing to say, here you've got these four different camps, but then what is the conclusion? Well, Iran hits, Iran supports the Houthis. The Houthis launch missiles that are more precise than they should be on their own, so they're getting help from somebody, likely Hezbollah and Iran, and they, they are aimed at the Riyadh International Airport. And so all of a sudden you have the Saudis speaking up quite loudly. They spoke up in a number of ways. Um, and Hariri would resign. Uh, they accused Lebanon of making war on them. They accused Iran of making war on them. So all of a sudden you have the logical conclusion, which, by the way, I thought of back in 1974 when I was a junior at Yale, which is one of the results of the Yom Kippur War in 1973 would be a tacit alliance between two status quo powers, Israel and the Saudi Arabia. Now nobody thought of that in 1974, and to be frank with you, it's taken a little bit long to happen. Uh, how many years is that since I've been out of college? 43. Huh? 43, 43. Yeah, that's a pretty long prediction. But it is happening. It is happening because it's logical. You have, at that time, there wasn't even an Iran that was an Islamic Republic, but it was still clear to me, at that time you could argue Egypt was the, the, the revisionist power. But clearly, Saudi Arabia, with its accretion of wealth, was going to be a very important player. Uh, that's when I made my decision to leave the Midwest and go to the Middle East, because if you remember, uh, the, the United States had a horrific recession in 1974, caused by uh, a lot of things, but basically the oil embargo that was uh, mainly the work of King Faisal of Saudi Arabia. So anyway, Saudi Arabia has been very much on my mind. The big question is, in 43 years, why hasn't it been able to convert its wealth into power? So for those of you who are interested in power and the nature of power, one thing for sure is it's not just money, uh, because they've had plenty of it. And uh, the way they have, I, I like the way John Jenkins says, uh, 
put it recently. They have plenty of capacity. I mean, how many jets do they have from uh, uh, the most advanced equipment? But they seem to, as, as we see in the, uh, their performance in the Yemen war, they seem to have uh, um, less than ample competence. Uh, on the other hand, Iran has not so much capacity and it seems to be performing with very much competence. So when, when Jenkins raised this point at a seminar a few weeks ago, I raised the question, well, that would uh, explain the need for Saudi Arabia maybe to ally itself with somebody that's competent, not only has capacity, but has competence, particularly in the military field. So what's going on in, in Saudi Arabia is quite interesting. You're having a revolution in, from above, not from below. You're having this guy, uh, MBS, who's centralizing power so that Saudi Arabia can begin to exert power. Before this, Saudi Arabia, how, how was Saudi Arabia run? First of all, you had the Mutawas and the religious uh, wing that was pushing radical Islam that was not winning too many friends, particularly in those of us in the counterterrorism field. Second, you had this phenomenon where all these princes were like their own foreign ministers. You had hundreds of foreign ministers doing their own thing. Some supported Al-Qaeda, some supported the United States. Uh, and, and, and so, in part, because I, I wrote about this, my first study for the U.S. government in 2002-2003 was on the future of Saudi Arabia. It was neat the way they had separated basically uh, three or four power centers. This, the Saudi National Guard, which was run by King Ab the late King Abdullah's father uh, uh, family. And then you had the Ministry of Defense, which was run by the Sultan. Um, and uh, Bandar is the son of Sultan. Khalid is also the son of Sultan. That family ran the MOD. And then you had um, the Minister of Interior that was run by the Nayef family. And uh, I, I thought that was kind of a clever way to kind of gain key constituencies, but also balance power. The, the National Guard was very good at preventing any coups, and the Ministry of Defense, of course, was guys buying all these weapons from the United States and, and Britain. Um, but what's happened is that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, what's the first thing he and his father uh, did? I think they're very much together. I think he's the favorite son of his father. There are other Salman children, uh, much older, uh, but this one in particular, uh, his father thought, gets it and, and, and can move. And, and, and if he's demonstrating anything, he has a lot of energy and ambition. So he, what is it, the first thing he does, well, um, in June, or it was the beginning of Ramadan this year, he uh, basically uh, <coughs> managed to have the crown prince, Mohammed bin Nayef, removed, and he was replaced as crown prince thereby neutralizing the presumed succession. Um, and then, recently, he removed uh, the son of King Abdullah from the National Guard, which was that, that, was that Abdullah family, uh, a certain guy named Mitab, who could have been uh, a, a, a challenge to a future King Mohammed bin Salman. So he removed those two. Uh, the Interior and the National Guard are now consolidated. Um, on the foreign front, what's interesting is that he starts to, to make noise about Lebanon. I mean, we've all seen what's happened in Lebanon. 
uh, not so much as in 2006, but in 2008, uh, Lebanon basically, the Hezbollah basically shut down the Sunni opposition. From a military point of view, from 2008, Hezbollah has been the preeminent power in Lebanon. First of all, it had a blocking power in, in, in terms of blocking anything it didn't want to happen in the parliament and in the ministry, but second of all, it basically asserted itself. And then, with the, with the beginning of the uh, rebellion in Syria, it moved out of Lebanon and became what I call the, the fighting force, the operational command level force for Iran's interest in Syria. And not only in Syria, as I said, since 2009, Hezbollah has been fighting with the Houthis, training the Houthis, and of course they've been active in Iraq training your Iran proxy, pro-Iranian uh, militias. So, um, uh, so the question, I go back, these four camps, do they make sense with, despite the shifting alliance, the fact that everything seems to be chaotic? I would argue yes. Iran on the rise, I think that's clear to everybody. It's not only Khomeiniism that's on the rise, it's part of Iran's imperial past that's being reflected, and, and that's part of the reason why it's so popular domestically. Hey, we made this peace, uh, this nuclear deal with the West, now we can assert ourselves traditionally in our, in our um, uh, effort to reclaim the old, the old empire of King Cyrus. Empire, 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 and you know when China comes up with its, with its own imperial um, Belt and Road Initiative, which is to create a new Silk Road, they need another empire, and Iran would be perfect for them as they build the road from uh, Xinjiang, from Western China, through the Central Asia, through Iran, uh, all the way up into uh, Piraeus, Greece, and ultimately into Central Europe. So, a lot's going on in, in, in Iran. Um, we'll come back to that. Um, the, the other phenomenon in the Middle East that's part of what, what's happening in Syria is the decline of the state. Since the Arab Spring happened, we've seen it in really stark terms with the rise of Daesh. Uh, it's simple. The Sunni Arab world is in decline. The state is in decline. And what you've seen is the rise of tribes, the rise of sects, the rise of clans, and in particular, the rise of non-Arab states, Iran, Turkey, Israel. And to some extent, the Kurds. Uh, maybe we'll talk about the Kurds in the Q&A. I, I want to say, how are we doing, Andrew? So far, so good. We've been on 15 minutes. 15. Okay. Well, I'm still in the first four lines of my notes, so speed it up, right? Um, We've only got uh, the room until the 2nd of December. So. Okay. All right. All right. It's <laughs> great. And we just met, by the way. I was 20 minutes late for lunch, but he, he's still been very cordial to me. Uh, listen. So we have the artificiality of states, and let's just quickly mention the, the, the where this came from. Um, Sykes-Picot, the British-French uh, concoction at the end of World War I, but you also had Nasser's Arab nationalism, which came crashing down in 1967. You had the Saudi response to promote Islam. We talked about that. That's led to a more, the most extreme jihadi form, which the Saudis have finally decided enough is enough, and they want to go into a more moderate uh, direction. And you had this rise of sectarianism. What are the prospects for Arab reform? I happen to have a Saudi client who believes in Arab reform. He happens to live in Paris and not in Riyadh, but he really does believe that there's nothing different from Arabs from anybody else, from Latin America or from 
from Eastern Europe, all the places that have gone through a democratic, democratic transition, which sort of, I guess, Ukraine, and some, some are still struggling. But, but you know what I mean, transparency and accountability, a free press, freedom of speech, gender equality, these are kind of universal things in his view. To me, you know, I look and I say, I, I, I think you're right, but, you know, we can discuss that. Uh, so, just to finish up, it, so what's happening in Saudi Arabia is MBS is centralizing authority so that, so that Saudi Arabia can wield the power commensurate with its wealth, and they are really starting to get nervous about Iran. Iran is threatening them. They look around, they don't see the United States there with them. Um, we can talk about U.S. policy in the Q&A, but I'm not going to dwell on it in, in my opening remarks. Why? Because Trump is kind of a black box, so we kind of, kind of have to make it up as we go. But uh, what I'm talking about here is observable facts, okay? Um, the other thing is that um, we have a very uh, interesting situation in Syria right now. The United States and Russia have made an agreement. They didn't sit down, but basically Trump runs into Putin at these conferences, one in Hamburg and the most recent one somewhere in East Asia, I think it was Vietnam. They make a deal on Syria. Basically, the deal is that Trump basically delegates Syria to Russia. And in particular, the issue that concerns Israel is how far can Iran and Iranian proxy be allowed toward the Israeli uh, Golan? It's a very, very sensitive issue. It's not the only issue for Israel, but it's very sensitive. And in both cases, Israel's interests were shut out. So what we're seeing now is, on the one hand, in Iran, drunk with its power from victories, it's saved Assad, it's got a whole bunch of stuff coming to it in terms of strategic and economic interest in Syria, it has a formula for expanding, that is you create local Hezbollah, organically created cells that, that basically are not Iranian, but they do the bidding of Iran. They have a great formula, and I attribute it mainly to General Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of Al-Quds, which is part of the Revolutionary Guard. Keep an eye on him. So what's, what's going on here? Where's the United States? I mean, Israel said, you know, when, when Lavrov said the next day after Israel protested the latest uh, Vietnam uh, understanding, Lavrov said, Iran is legitimate because they've been legitimate, they've been invited by Assad, who is the legitimate ruler. Well, I guess some would argue that Assad is not the legitimate ruler, but the fact of the matter is, Russia seems to be supporting Iran's stake in Syria, and the United States is kind of saying, well, there's some language in it that says that all foreign forces will have to leave at some point. So what you're seeing is Israel is reverting to the old Israel that you may remember from the 50s, 60s, certainly 70s, 80s, where it basically acts on its own. It asserts its own security interests. It doesn't work behind the United States. Uh, they thought that Trump would be pro-Israel and different from Obama, and what they're discovering is, despite the lofty language of Trump, particularly when it comes to Iran, uh, that they have basically a de facto Obama. This is interesting. So what do you have? 
I guess this is the Thucydides trap. What do you have? Well, you have a rising power, Iran, rising uh, toward the Mediterranean, and you have a, a status quo power that's the preeminent military power in the Middle East, namely Israel. Sounds to me like you're going to have war war. Uh, I, I, would, I would not predict a, a hot war, but certainly, certainly they're going to be some tit for tat's going to be happening because Israel's red lines are incompatible with Iran's interests. And Iran thinks it deserves what it wants and it's going to get what it wants. And Russia's sitting there and saying, oh my God. I mean, they've got their spy chief in Tel Aviv right now. Uh, oh my God, Israel could wreck this whole thing. I mean, you know how easy it is? take out Assad? They, could, they took out a guy named Samir Kuntar from an apartment building 60 miles away with a, a guided missile. Their intelligence is, is the best in the Middle East. There's a big article in Vanity, Vanity Fair, you may have heard that, where Trump was trying to, I don't know what he was trying to do, he was trying to ingratiate his Russian hosts uh, by telling them Hey, that, you know, you know what I heard? I heard that, hey, you know, the Israelis put in, they had these guys go into northern Syria and plant these uh, uh, listening devices in, in uh, Daesh so that we found out from them that they were going to put laptops in, uh, in airplanes and blow them up. Wow! I, mean, I don't think the Israeli intelligence people were too happy about that disclosure, to say the least. But it does show you that with good intelligence, you do have an edge. So I definitely see, with uh, Israel feeling abandoned, if you will, by a, a lackluster, uh, confused United States, which doesn't seem to have any policy on the future of Syria, and a very kind of ambivalent relationship with Russia, which is on the one hand, Russia thinks uh, Israel is practically Russian to them, and they got a Russian-speaking defense minister, and. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu has made so many visits to Sochi. Uh, is it Sochi? Sochi. Sochi. Um, but on the other hand, uh, as I said from Lavrov's recent statement, Russia certainly sees Iran and Hezbollah as the foot soldiers to maintain Assad, which is in their interest. So, big question marks on what's going to happen. I predict there's going to be uh, some interesting. Basically, Israel will use its air force to attack these precision uh, missile factories that Iran is trying to build in Lebanon and Syria. And the question is whether Russia will try to challenge their, their airspace. And that would get interesting because, you know, Russia's uh, power in, in, in Syria is more, is more uh, bark than bite. It's not that deep. And Israel, if it had to, could uh, take out the S-300, the S-400, as long as they stay away. So, as long as they stay away from the Russian forces themselves, and they could, but they could hit any, any place around them. Be really interesting if Assad says, sure, Iran, you may build a sea base and an air base here. Uh, what would happen if that sea base was located by the Russian sea base, and that air base was located by the Russian air base? But, I, I, to my recollection, I don't think the Iranians have much of an air force, and uh, I don't think a sea base would, I think a sea base would provide a nice target for the Israeli air force. So, when you come down to it, a lot of these fears or these red lines that Israel's setting are kind of, are kind of exaggerated, but what they really fear 
is that Iran is going to basically take over Syria and connect to Lebanon, and they've already got so much going in, in Iraq, it's going to be very difficult. Now, the upside is, this is, people say Iran is what's bringing Saudi Arabia and Israel together. It's not true. It's the United States bringing them together. You think about it. The United States was Saudi's reliable ally, and then they see what the United States did under Obama to Mubarak, they threw him under the bus. They see what Obama did with the Czech power, that's the uh, nuclear deal. Basically, they, they basically privileged Iran, their, their enemy. Uh, they see the Palestinian issue isn't as important as it used to be. For some of you, it may still be very important. We can discuss that. And they see that, you know, maybe uh, Israel can replace the United States. So there, there's a lot of upside there. But from the Israeli point of view, what exactly can Saudi Arabia do for them in, in, in Syria? I mean, did the Saudi Arabia have, have, do they have battalions? Do they have Sunni Hezbollah, the equivalent of Sunni Hezbollah? Uh, they have money. That's what they have. Uh, and so... It's just hard. And also, the other thing, uh, and I'll, I'll end with this, is when you talk about a Sunni Arab camp, without the United States and, and Israel, uh, this Sunni Arab camp is not going to come together. Egypt is totally wrapped up with internal issues, the latest being hundreds of people killed in, uh, in, in northern Sinai. Uh, who else is there? Iraq is not uh, in that camp. Uh, Qatar is outside that camp now. So it's a it's a pretty pretty weak camp. Are we are we at thirty five? You can have five minutes. Five more minutes. Yeah. Okay, then I'll get to the second half of this. In Thanksgiving, so yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think I covered most of my things. Trump has no clear strategy on Syria. Uh, for him, it's mission accomplished. For Israel, it's the mission is just starting. For Iran, the mission is continuing and entering a new military, political, and diplomatic phase. The United States. This is particularly controversial. <coughs> has defeated Iran's enemies three times. First, right, Iraq, 2003, Saddam Hussein. He wasn't a nice guy, but he was the balancer against uh, Iran. What was the second one? Afghanistan. The Taliban. Ruthlessly anti anti Shia. Maybe changing now, but that was an enemy of Iran. And what's the latest enemy of Iran that the United States led coalition defeated? Or is defeated? It's Daesh. So it's not that Iran is some incredible superpower, some military uh, giant. It's that we, the West, have been defeating Iran's enemies. We've been working for Iran. That's one way to look at it. That's one way to look at it. And Iran simply is filling the vacuum. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Um, and that, I think, so that can, I, I think that's, um, that's where I want to leave it.